Uh, this morning we want to begin a series of messages entitled The Metrics of Grace. The Metrics of Grace. And we want to look at the various facets of grace that we are all a part of because of our relationship to the living God. It's all because of his grace that we are here today. We're saved by his grace, we're kept by his grace, we're gifted by his grace, and his grace is what propels us to reach out and touch a community with the love of God. And so today we want to look at that very important facet of grace, which is worship. And I invite you to take your Bibles, your iPhones, please turn to Psalm 24, Psalm 24, and uh, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open to this passage of Scripture. Uh, you have an outline that's been passed out to you. And uh, if you'll keep the Scriptures open and out outline handy, uh, it will help you as we work our way through this very significant passage of Scripture. Psalm 24. Will you all please stand in honor of the Word of God and we'll read this. Uh, let's read it together. It's a short passage. Let's read it together. Psalm 24, beginning at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. And then notice that little word, Selah. That word means to just stop, pause, think about what we've just read. This is God's word to us. God has some very important things for each one of us to learn. And so let's ask the Holy Spirit right now to open our minds and our truth to what God wants to say to us today. Father in heaven, we do love you. We're so thankful for the privilege of being able to come before you. What a wonderful time of worship as we've been led by the worship team. Thank you, Lord, for these Songs that remind us of your faithfulness, your goodness, your grace. Oh Lord, of all people, we are so blessed. Help us never to take our blessings for granted, but to walk in obedience to your truth and to constantly be filled with a knowledge of your will and ever increasing in our love for you and our love for one another. Bless this truth to our hearts this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I reflect on our lives as believers, I've come to the conclusion that our ultimate priority must be worship of the living God. Worship is one of the ways in which we express our love and our devotion to the one who first loved us. And worship, to be meaningful, needs to be something that we're practicing on a daily basis. 
so that when we come on a Sunday morning, that Sunday morning is an overflow of our time alone with God where we have experienced his presence and his power in our individual lives. And the more we understand worship, I believe the more fruitful our lives will become. In fact, I believe that God's desire for every single one of us is that we become fruitful Christ followers. Now, it's very interesting that there have been many options uh, about how do you measure the fruitfulness of the church. Some say you measure fruitfulness by nickels, numbers, and noses. Others say you measure the fruitfulness of the church by buildings, budgets, and bling. I believe God measures the fruitfulness of a church by its faith, hope, and love. But all of that is an outpouring of the grace of God in each one of our lives. Jonathan Edwards, the great pulpiteer who is best known for his message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is not known primarily as a pastor practitioner, but he does speak about the marks of what he considered to be a fruitful church in his article entitled, Distinguishing the Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And in that particular article, which many do not even realize exists, he lists five specific marks of what a fruitful church looks like. Number one, the first thing that a fruitful church is known for is its growing esteem for Jesus. It's growing esteem for Jesus. That's what worship is. We're falling more deeply in love with him. And the more deeply we fall in love with him, the higher we hold him as a priority in our lives. Number two, he said, not only is a fruitful church a church that has a growing esteem for Jesus, but it has a discernible spirit of repentance. That we keep our confessions up to date. We don't let things slide by. We acknowledge when we do wrong and we confess and repent of that which we know displeases him. Number three, he says, a fruitful church evidences a dogged devotion to the word of God. This book, in fact, I have it written in the flyleaf of my Bible, a statement that Dwight L. Moody put in his Bible. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And as your interim pastor, I come before you not to just speculate, but always to be under the authority of this book. I don't have anything to say to you on a Sunday morning except what is in this book. And we want to develop a deep love and a deep devotion to this book that can change our lives. I have many books in my library, there's only one book that's changed my life, and that's this book, because it tells us how we can have a relationship with the living God. Number four, according to Edwards, a fruitful church has an interest in theology. They get to know God. They want to understand more and more of his grace, more and more of his supreme attributes. And then lastly, a fruitful church evidences love for God 
and neighbor, loving relationships in the body. The thing that will attract the unchurched more than anything else is a deep devotion to God, His Word, and loving relationships within the body. That is what people are looking for. That is what they're in desperate need of. And so I believe that Edwards gives us a pretty clear model as to what a fruitful church looks like. And by God's grace, uh, that's the kind of a church that we want to become. Now today we want to look at what God-centered, Christ-honoring worship is all about. First of all, there are about five statements that come to my mind. Worship primarily is pleasing an audience of one. Worship has been compared to a drama. In drama number one, the Bible is the script. God is the author. The Holy Spirit is the director. And the ministers are the actors while the congregation is the audience. That's the first model. The more correct model, drama number two, the various elements of the service comprise the script. That is, the praise courses, the prayers, uh, the scripture reading, the message, all of that comprises the script. The ministers are the directors led by the Holy Spirit. The congregation comprises the cast, and God himself is an audience of one. We have come this morning not to please ourselves, but to please an audience of one. And this is what the Lord Jesus has in mind when in John chapter 4 Verse 23, he says that the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now I want you to think about this. The Father seeks our worship. He doesn't seek anything else from us. He doesn't seek our prayers. He doesn't seek our service. He doesn't seek our devotion. He seeks our worship. Our worship is what he is after more than anything else. And therefore, when we come to worship, we have come to seek him with all of our hearts. And the question we must ask ourselves after we have been in the presence of the Lord in worship, it's not, what did I get out of the service? It's the wrong question. The question is, What does God think of my worship? Has my worship pleased him? As I have been in the house of the Lord, have my conversations, my interactions, everything been something that pleases the Lord? So first of all, worship is pleasing an audience of one. Secondly, worship True worship is pursuing God with our hearts. Here in John chapter 4 and verse 24, Jesus says that the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now I want you to focus your attention for just a moment on that phrase, in spirit. That phrase speaks of the human spirit. In other words, for worship to be meaningful, for worship to touch the heart of God, we need to put our heart into worship. We need to be engaged in worship. And in that sense, a worship service is much like going to the bank. 
You won't get anything out of the bank until first of all you do what? You make a... Oh, that was weak. You make a what? A deposit. You have to put something in if you're going to get something out. We need to put our hearts into worship. We need to be engaged in worship if we are to please this audience of one. True worship is pursuing God with our hearts. And you'll remember, this is what broke the heart of the Lord Jesus. He looked at the religious establishment of his day, and he says, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, and uh, what is the verse? Uh, Verse 13, he says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. How can it be? We gather together, and yet our hearts are not in tune with the living God. And so true worship is putting our hearts into worship. And when we put our hearts into worship, we will come to the worship service with a sense of expectancy. We will want to see what God wants to do. When God shows up, we want to be present, don't you? Man, when God makes himself known, we want to experience the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus. And when we're putting our hearts into worship, let me tell you, there will be an attitude of expectancy. We can hardly wait to be together with God's people. We long for that moment when we can come together as a body to worship the living God. There will be a sense of expectancy. I want you to keep your finger there in Psalm 24. Flip over to Psalm 130, uh, verses 5 and 6. Because when there is a sense of expectancy, we can hardly wait for God to make himself known. The psalmist in 130, verses 5 and 6 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord, notice, More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Do we have any night watchmen here? Anybody been a night watchman? Put up your hand. Okay. Don't see any night watchmen here. When I was a student at Westmont College, we had a forest fire that burned around our campus, burned down in one of the dorms. And one particular night, I was along with other students, I was charged to guard a building that had been damaged. I I was to guard that building from looters. And I had on this hard hat, you know, with with a light on the top of it. And I'm telling you, that was the most lonely night I think I've ever experienced, walking back and forth in front of this dorm that had been pretty well decimated by the fire. And I, would, I kept checking my man. It seems like, oh, goodness, how long is this going to be? It was dark. It was cold. It was an eerie feeling. And I could hardly wait for the first rays of the sun. I longed for that sun to appear. I was so anxious. I was waiting for that sun to break through the clouds. And that kind of expectation... That is what is to grip our hearts when we gather together. We come because we know that God is going to show up, and when he shows up, we want to be in that place where he can bless us for his glory. 
Number three, true worship is preparing our minds to receive God's truth. He not only encourages us to worship in spirit, but notice he also says to worship in spirit and truth. Our worship is always enhanced by the more we know about God and his word. The more we take the scriptures into our hearts and make it a part of our lives, that will bring worship to life for us. If the only time you crack your Bible is when you come to worship, you've waited too long. We need to be engaged in Bible study, in devotional study on a daily basis. If we're not, worship is going to pass us by. We won't get a thing out of the morning worship service. The music will leave us, uh, we'll be critical. And the sermon will just be, go right over our heads. Because we have not been nurturing ourselves throughout the week in the word. But when we're nurturing ourselves in the word, oh, let me tell you. Sunday becomes an overflow. It's an overflow of what God's been teaching us all during the week. And we share with others what God has been doing in our lives. How he's changed us. How he's made us brand new from the inside out. Worship is preparing our minds to receive more and more of God's truth. You can never get too much of God's word, by the way. Never get too much. I mean, once you get bitten by the Bible bug, let me tell you, (laughs) you'll want more and more and more of God's truth. Number four, true worship is positioning ourselves for an empower encounter with the living God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul gives us insight into what true worship is all about. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, listen carefully, the power of the Lord Jesus is present. In other words, when we gather together in this kind of a setting... The power of Jesus is present. Now, let me tell you, our world today is obsessed with power. They're obsessed with the supernatural. And more often than not, it's the evil side of the supernatural. And you see this in the movies, the bestsellers. It's all about evil, supernatural power and evil. But not so when God's people come together. When we come together, the power of God is present. And there is a sense of joy and expectancy. I mean, hundreds and thousands can gather together in a football stadium to cheer on their favorite team. That's not worship. Many other big meetings can take place. A PTA meeting, some kind of a a community festival, but that's not worship. Worship happens when we gather in the what? The name of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says that the name of the Lord Jesus is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are secure. You believe that? Oh, that was weak. Oh, my. Do you believe this? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are secure. There is power in the name of Jesus. Songwriter put it this way. 
There's just something about that name. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And when we gather in the name of Jesus, the power of the living God is here. Never forget that. It's one of the earmarks of true worship. And then lastly, true worship is praising the only one worthy of our total devotion. We praise the living God. Second Chronicles, chapter six, First Chronicles 16 and verse 29, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. You see, when we give God praise, we honor him for who he is. Not just because of what he's done, we honor him because he's the living God. And we not only praise him, we take it a step further, we prize him. You see, when, when, when you prize someone, you don't speak in one or two words like thank you to them, you speak in superlatives about them. You speak with exclamation points. You praise the living God. There is something about the body of Christ that comes with an attitude of worship and praising the Lord Jesus that defeats the enemy like crazy. I mean, he can't survive in a congregation that is filled with praise. He runs. He can't handle it. Praising this awesome God is what true worship is really all about. Now, that's just my introduction. Uh, get ready for the good stuff now. I want you to look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a psalm of worship. No doubt it's occasioned when King David brings the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Eden into the tent he's pitched for it in Jerusalem. And years later, this particular psalm may have been uh, chanted or sung by the choir as they approached the temple in Mount Zion. You'll remember that the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the very presence of the Lord. And the question that David responds to is, how are we as God's people to respond to the presence of the Lord among us? Remember, he's here. He wants to do great things. How are we as God's people to respond to him. First of all, in this passage, we see the rationale of worship. Notice he says in verse 1, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. These verses give us compelling evidence that Jesus Christ and God himself is the ruler and sustainer of all creation. The earth belongs to the living God, number one. Everything in the earth is his domain. Everything that God creates has a stamp of excellence. Have you ever gotten up early on a particular morning and looked at the sunrise, that beautiful red wafer that comes up? And I said, ah, guess God had an off day today. Uh, that's, that's not quite right. 
Have you ever seen a mediocre sunrise or a mediocre sunset? Never. All you have to do is look up into the heavens and realize that we have a creator God who created everything in the heavens and the earth, and he did so without any defect. Look at this incredible bay out here. Look at the mountains. Look at the hills. Look what lives in the lake. Everything about God, everything is perfect. He is the creator, sustainer of this world. Moreover, number two, we as human beings are called to worship the living God. We are called to worship the living God. You see, we have been created a little bit lower than the angels, but we have been given a soul and a spirit so that we can worship back to God. Creation shouts there is a God, but God created us as human beings He wants us to worship Him. He wants us to elevate Him more than anything else. In fact, the psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep under His care. He wants us as created in His image, as His image bearers to worship and to adore, and to love Him. He is the master of the universe. He is to be the supreme object of our worship. And then thirdly, Christ is the ultimate expression of our worship. Keep your finger there in Psalm 24. We're going to come back to it, but I want you to flip over to Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. This is a tremendous passage in the New Testament about the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by by him, notice, all things were created, things in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. That means prior to creation, he existed. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He existed before creation. He's before all things. And in him, notice, all things hold together. He is the head, the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Underline this next statement in chartreuse. So that, whenever you see a so that, Better perk your antenna up. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. You see, Jesus doesn't want a prominent place in our lives. He wants a place of preeminence. He doesn't want to be a sideshow in our lives. He wants to be the only one that we are surrendered to and have given our lives to. In all things. He wants to be supreme because he is the creator God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, and he's the one who recreates us because he sent his son into the world to be our savior, to go to the cross and lay down his life for us and then be resurrected so we could have new life 
in him. So this psalm extols the rationale why we worship. We worship because God's our creator. He's made us in his image. And Jesus Christ is to be supreme in our lives. Then number two, he moves on to the requirements of worship. You know, it's quite one thing to acknowledge that God's the creator, that he's created all things. It's quite another thing to approach this living God in worship. And David, as he contemplates the greatness of God, notice in verse 3, he asks two very penetrating questions. Don't let this get by you too quick. First of all, he says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Remember, this is all about meeting God in worship. How do we prepare? Who can actually come and worship this one that is totally worthy of our praise? And David says, oh my. How can I begin to approach this great God? And he gives us a threefold answer. By the way, do you realize how much time we spend getting ready for church? Now we get out of bed, make sure we, we look good, take a shower, smell good, get all fixed up. We spend a lot of time getting ready on the outside. But the answer to this question has to do with what's going on on the inside. By the way, you may want to write this down. The most important part of your life is the part that only God sees. People may, you know, compliment you. Oh, you look really great. Like that new hairdo. Oh, everything, everything's wonderful. Compliment on the outside. That what, if we're going to really worship God, we need to get an inside look. What's going on on the inside. He gives us three ways we're to do this. He says, first of all, he says... If you want to meet God, you need to be a person of purity in an impure culture. Notice verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands speak of purity of conduct. Pure heart speaks of purity of character. A holy God desires that we as his people come before him with clean hands and a clean heart. Now, what makes this requirement so difficult is that we live in a terribly impure culture. We live in a society that is bent to taking sin to whole new levels. We live in a world today that marginalizes Christianity. And elevates every conceivable kind of evil imaginable. And yet God calls us as his people to be pure. How in the world can we expect to have a power encounter with the living God if on Saturday night we're filling our minds with all the garbage on late night television? That's aimed to hurt and to destroy 
everything that God wants to build in our lives. Do you, do you see, do you see what's, what's going on? There is a war going on today, right now, between good and evil. And we're seeing it before our very eyes. The evil around us is becoming so obvious. And that's what makes this requirement so difficult. God wants us as his people to come before him with clean hands and a pure heart. If we want to see God, we need to be people of what? Purity. Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he put it this way, the pure in heart, they shall what? See God. Do you want to see God? You want to experience his presence, his power in your life? Then the first requirement is that we come before him with clean hands and a pure heart. Number two, he says we need to be people of loyalty in a bifurcated culture. We are living in a world of division. Division in our country, the division in families, division in churches. We live in a world where people just can't get along. And God desires our complete loyalty as his people. He is jealous for our complete affection. The very first commandment that God gives to Moses on Mount Sinai was this, you shall have no other gods before me. Anything in our life that we are more passionate about than the Lord Jesus Christ is an idol, and we need to jettison it. What may be an idol for one person is not the same as an idol for another person. For some it may be power, it may be control, it may be pleasure. Maybe any one of these kinds of things that get a grip on our lives. For most of us, our biggest problem is dear old self. Self is what gets in the way of our worship of God more than anything else. And we have taken self to a whole new level in our culture today. We take selfies. And then we pass it on to others so they will say how great we are. And if we don't get enough, you know, clicks that were really great, we feel down and discouraged and all. It's 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 unbelievable. Self is what keeps us from experiencing the presence of the living God more than anything else. And I want you to keep your Bibles there in Psalm 24, but turn over to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This preoccupation with self is one of the key things that will happen in the generation just before Jesus comes. Timothy is reminded by the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last day. First thing, notice, people will be lovers of themselves. 
They just are concerned about themselves. Let everything else go by. I am king of my life. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. They are lovers of themselves. Notice. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. The Lord Jesus wants us to make and enthrone him number one. There is no one in competition in our lives. We have surrendered to the living God and we are loyal to him no matter what. That's the kind of a worshiper that the Lord is looking for. Loyalty. And then the third test of how we're to come before God in worship. Not only we, must we be people of purity and people of, integ- of um, loyalty, we must be people of integrity. Notice the last part of verse 4. Or swear by what is false. I hardly know how to describe what has happened in our culture today. But we as a people have come to that place where we don't know the difference between right and wrong. It seems like lying has become the new norm. My wife taught third graders for a number of years. She had little kids in her class on one occasion. This little boy constantly lied all the time. Lied to Sandy, lied to his classmates. He, he had a problem. And so Sandy, in the parent-teacher conferences, thought she ought to talk to the parent about this problem. This was the parents' reaction. Ah! (laughs) He's a kid. He lies all the time. No big deal. This is just normal. Why should you be concerned about this? Take a look at what's going on in our government. We lie. We don't call it lies. We call it what? Disinformation, misinformation, or spin. It's unbelievable. And this is filtering down now throughout all the generations. People today don't know if they're telling the truth or telling a lie. You can tell a lie so often you begin to believe it. And what the Lord Jesus, or what the psalmist here is talking about, he is saying, I want your word to carry some weight. I don't want you to speak in riddles. I want your yes to be yes, your no, no. I want you to be people of integrity. 
A number of years ago, there was a book published entitled The Day America Told the Truth. It was based on a public opinion poll which guaranteed the anonymity of those participating. This was a number of years ago now. This, this book was published. It reveals some interesting data. Only 13% see the Ten Commandments as binding on us today. They're just happy thoughts from God. They're the Ten Suggestions. They're not the Ten Commandments. People that you rub shoulders with, they can lie, steal, cheat, no big deal. But that's what, not what God requires of us. 91% said they regularly lie at home and at work. Most workers admit to goofing off an average of seven hours a week. Just budging a little bit, taking a little bit more time during the break. Can you imagine? That's, that's like one complete work day. We, we live in a world today that does not value integrity, honesty, truthfulness. And unfortunately, it's impacted every single one of us. It impacts our friends. It impacts our neighbors, our loved ones. But when we come for worship, the psalmist here is saying to us that we need to be absolute people of integrity. We do not swear by that which is false. We speak the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We are people of integrity. What does God require of us when we approach him? He requires three things. Purity, loyalty, and integrity. Now, if this is not true in our lives, should we stay away from the house of God? If we're not people of purity, loyalty, and integrity, should we stay away? No, 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 no. That's when you need to come to church. Remember this. The church is not the society of the successful. It is the fellowship of the forgiven. That was weak. I'm looking for a big amen here. Church is not the society of the successful. It is the fellowship of the forgiven. You see, God wants us, if we're not lining up with his teaching, we need to get in relationship with another Christ follower who will help us and hold us accountable so that we can become a person of purity, loyalty, and integrity. And then lastly, the results of worship. Some of you are saying, well, why should I? What's in there for me? Why should I be a person of purity, loyalty, and integrity? Well, here's the payoff. There's two major results. First of all, when we meet God's worship requirements, will receive blessing from the Lord. Notice verse 5. He will receive blessing, put a circle around blessing from the Lord. He's not here speaking about material blessings like, you know, a good job and all the money that you want and all these kinds of things. He, he's talking about experiencing the presence of Jesus. We will receive blessing. We will experience the blessing of God. 
Oh my. <laughs> Once we experience the blessing of God, we will want more and more and more of his blessing. And number two, notice, and vindication from God his Savior. That word vindication literally means righteousness. When we draw near to God in worship, we realize that our own righteousness is so insufficient. And we understand that our righteousness was purchased for us when Jesus went to the cross and he laid down his life for us. And when we understand the righteousness of Christ and what he has done for us, we will want to stay at the foot of the cross. Somebody has put it this way, the people that we are around the most, we grow to resemble. And let me tell you, when we're deeply in love with him, we will want to linger at the cross. We will want to spend time with Jesus because of the blessings that come our way and the assurance that we belong to him. We have been made brand new, not because of our righteousness, but because of his incredible righteousness. Notice verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of that generation that's seeking after God. I never want to get content and in a spiritual funk. You know, there's some folks, you know, they just, they make a decision for Christ and then they go on autopilot and they miss all the blessings. God wants us as his people to be so in love with him that when we come to worship, worship will just be an outflow of a life that has been captured by Jesus. Let me leave you with these final thoughts. Worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It only whets our appetite. It only whets our appetite for more of God. Worship is not a feeling. It is a declaration of God's worth. Number three, worship is not a mood. It is a response of our hearts to the living God. Worship is not something passive. It is active. And lastly, worship is never about us. It's all about him and I believe that the mark of a fruitful church is a congregation of worshipers that are so taken up with Jesus so taken up with the living God that when people observe their conversations their attitudes their moods their actions they simply say there is a person who's been in touch with Jesus. Let's stand together for closing prayer. Father in heaven, we do love you this morning. 
we have so much to learn about music or about worship. There is so much that we do not know and we do not grasp. And so we pray that in these quiet moments that we would draw near to you. If there's sin in our lives, Lord, help us to confess it. If there are attitudes that need to be confessed, we need to go and make restitution with others, Lord, help us to do that so that we can come before you with clean hands and a pure heart. That there's no question about our loyalty to you. You are number one. No one else comes close to you. That, Lord, we will linger at the foot of the cross and experience your power and your presence in unique and powerful ways. So, Lord, we surrender to you today. We give all of our hearts to you. May you be honored in our worship, in our lives. May this coming week be a week in which we experience your power in new and fresh ways. And all God's people say, Amen.